Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Hope you all had a good Dragon Boat Festival, enjoyed the sun while it lasted, because it's gone already. Also in studio, uh, we've got frequent contributor and strategic analyst Ross Feingold. Did you have a good one, Wujia? Uh, I was in Hong Kong, and uh, there were dragon boats and zongses there as well. It's all you can ask for. Uh, and for the very first time, we have William Young, who is a freelance journalist who contributes to Ketagalan Media. William, very happy to have you on the show. Did you have a good dragon boat festival? Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I just stay around Taipei and then yeah, went to the river and observed the Dragon Ball Festival competition. Yeah. All right. Well, now it's raining hard, so I hope we got the most out of that. On the show today, the 28th anniversary of China's infamous Tiananmen Square massacre will be marked this Sunday in Taiwan. And organizers of those remembrance are planning to use the occasion as an opportunity to put a spotlight on the continuing detention in China of Taiwanese human rights activist Li Mingzhe. We'll bring you the latest on his case as well as the significance of Tiananmen in Taiwan. Then we'll be talking Taiwan tech news as major IT exhibition Computex continues in Taipei. The Legislative Yuan just passed an act aimed at preserving threatened indigenous languages in Taiwan. We're going to discuss the law and its significance for Taiwan's indigenous peoples with its original drafter, legislator Gulis Yudaka. And we'll end out the show on a somber note today. A beloved member of Taiwan's international community died this week, and eulogies and remembrances have popping up in Taiwan and around the world for Father George Martinson. He's a well-known American Jesuit missionary who lived and worked in Taiwan for 50 years. We'll discuss his life and legacy. But first, one of the biggest stories of the year broke last week, and we completely missed it because we were busy with our live panel discussion on President Tsai's first year in office. But, uh, yeah, gay marriage is just about legal in Taiwan. And when that happens, Taiwan will be the first country in Asia to take this step. So, uh, real quick, just to get everyone caught up, uh, Taiwan's Council of Grand Justices decided that current laws that prevent gay marriage are unconstitutional. But it's not just like flipping a switch. Uh, the laws on the books still need to be revised. The council actually gave the legislature a two-year time limit to get it all sorted out. And now we're waiting to see what that's going to mean. Apparently, the executive yuan is also trying to figure out uh, for themselves, what that's going to mean. In fact, uh, they said earlier this week that a broad range of laws need amending, including those related to marital property rights, inheritance, and parenthood. Uh, and it's just not quite sure yet how it's going to do it. Uh, since then, the cabinet has said they actually will ask local governments to recognize household registrations by same-sex couples even before all the legal issues are sorted out. So that's kind of interesting. We may have kind of this two-track solution going on at once, one at the local level where local authorities are going to figure out how they want to handle this, and one at the national level where the laws are actually going to get drafted for some kind of more permanent solution. Uh, at the same time, though, efforts to push through some kind of legalization bill in the legislature ran into trouble this week as cross-caucus negotiations fell apart. So, uh, Ross... It uh, You've kind of made the comment on the show before that uh, some of these legal issues are not quite as difficult as people make them out to be. 
should we be a little bit concerned that, you know, we're seeing this difficulty in the legislature and the executive UN is basically saying, we don't know what to do yet? It's the same issue that's come up repeatedly throughout the last uh, year and a half that this uh, issue has um, been pursued more actively uh, and specifically after the DPP gained a majority in the legislature and, and some of their DPP legislators proposed a legislative solution to this issue. And the executive branch, um, the ministers in, in President Tsai's government, have repeatedly cited as an excuse, many feel, justifiably uh, uh, citing it as an excuse, that the government will say that there's so many laws that need to be changed and it takes a long time. But the, the reality is, as the, the justices um, recognized, and now as the government is kind of, the central government's trying to dump on the local governments, that intelligence and logic and discretion will have to come into play until every single law is revised. And that's the same approach that happens in other countries throughout the world that legalized marriage equality, whether it was done by a legislative solution by changing the, the relevant laws related to marriage or judicially imposed as it was by the Supreme Court. So a, a government official at the central government level or the local government level, if they're presented with a situation where there is a, a homosexual married couple in front of them and, and some solution has to be found to the payment of benefits or some such thing, again, logic should apply. If, if the government official is looking at a regulation that refers to a man and a woman in the context of marriage, but they have a gay couple in front of them, a, a legally married gay couple, couple, then again, apply intelligence and logic uh, and, and, and award the benefits or, or whatever is due to, to the spouse. Uh, the, the, to cite you know, some regu- – not every last regulation having been revised really is an excuse, and, and the government has just repeatedly used this as an excuse to avoid taking action, and, and now it's been imposed on them by the court. Frankly, I, I think uh, public patience, at least with the supporters uh, of marriage equality and, and immediate attention, both domestically and internationally, patience is going to erode if the government keeps using that as an excuse. Mm. I want to get into those uh, broader society-type questions uh, real quick in a second. But, uh, William, before we do, real quick, can you tell me uh, what are you going to be looking for in terms of process as this plays out? I think definitely uh, looking at the um, strategies that's going to come up between the opposing side and the supporting side. Because uh, right now, right after the uh, result on Wednesday, we're seeing um, the... Supporting side basically kind of just uh, sit back and, you know, enjoy the moment, enjoy the fact that, you know, uh, their rights are being recognized by the grand justices. But uh, right after that, uh, in the past week, we've been seeing a lot of um, actions coming up from the opposing side, which is uh, they kept, you know, uh, staging protests outside of the legislative uh, outside of the legislative realm, while also at the local level, uh, the Greenland County, um, they're actually planning a uh, Impeachment of the grand justices who supported the um, the ruling on last Wednesday. So uh, it's either we keep seeing the opposing side making the headline in the national level, or uh, we will see the supporting side at some point step up their game and you know get into their lobbyings because uh, apparently the DPP is not feeling enough pressure from the supporting side right now. So if uh, the supporting side is unable to exercise their lobbying skills or their uh, ma- maneuver the uh, m- m- momentum a little bit, then uh, we're probably going to see the st- stagnation right now dragging on much longer than we expected. 
Mm. All right. So that's kind of a picture of where the legal process stands at the moment. Taiwan is still, though, something of a divided nation on the point of legalized same-sex marriage. Obviously, the crowds opposing same-sex marriage are tiny compared to the crowds uh, supporting, but they are real and they are present. And uh, I'm curious, what, what do you think about uh, Ross's point a moment ago that it, it, it's significant that this was a decision made by the courts rather than by the uh, the president herself or the legislature as a whole? Does that and, and as you just said a second ago, a lot of these protesters are now calling for the ouster of these judges and uh, they really don't see this as a legitimate decision. Uh, how important do you think that that's going to be uh, going forward just in terms of the process of Taiwan coming to terms uh, with gay marriage and this reality? I think one thing very important is for the Thai government to really uphold and uh, recognize and respect the ruling uh, from last week because apparently there's a big gap between, you know, like what the judges said in the court and uh, what the government uh, did right after it. Like, it, it just seems like the legislate, uh, the DPP legislative uh, run, uh, team has been kind of uh, not ignoring but not respecting the ruling. And uh, like uh, Ke Jianming just yesterday said in the uh, legislature that, you know, um, because the Yomenu's uh draft bill version is not really the like consensus at the party by large so uh, right Yo now Yomenu being uh, the DPP legislator who was uh, one of the most prominent supporters of gay marriage and a, a sponsor of one of the earliest bills yeah so r- right now the party should you know internally reach a consensus before they move along with either uh, supporting Yomenu's version or actually uh, decide whether they want to elect a uh, erect a new law so but, but William he's, he's the, the leader of the party caucus and they've been discussing this for a year and a half he still can't bring his caucus to a, to to a consensus, and then when is he going to do so? I actually think that he has an agenda of uh, you know like setting up a new separate law instead of like uh, changing uh, the civil code. Y- yes, yeah, because that's basically going to hurt him as he is a, a legislator that needs to rely on the constituents uh, locally, and a lot of the. Uh, Conservative conservative faction within the DPP are also very unwilling to uh, show their open support for the uh, direct amendment to the civil code just because they know that it's going to backfire at the uh, general election next year. Let's just dig down on that point for one second. For uh, This is a point that we've actually discussed before in the show, but it's basically this idea that rather than changing the civil code for everybody, gay marriage would be passed by with some external legislation, some extra legislation that would be separate and apart and cover gay marriage specifically. Some people see it as a compromise to kind of smooth this process along. Other people would compare it to, you know, the separate but equal kind of provisions uh, that uh, infamously uh, were held in the U.S. during a somewhat dark periods of that country's history. But the last question I want to put to you, William, before we move on from this topic is, you, 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 you've been covering uh, this ruling for Ketagal and Media, and one of the things that you've been writing about is the fact that gay marriage is not necessarily the be-all, end-all of uh, gay acceptance in yeah. Taiwan, and that uh, there, you know, perhaps are other steps or other conversations that Taiwan uh, will need to have in the coming years. Yeah, definitely. I think the uh, legalization of same-sex marriage is just the first step um, of a wider uh, social acceptance towards LGBT issues. Uh, there are definitely more issues like um, HIV uh, issues or um, transgender issues or 
like other like LGBT minority issues that needs to be uh, addressed and uh, recognized at first, and then perhaps the society can you know like form a discussion or conversation around it. Then we can move along. But I think at this point, Taiwan is still rather a little bit far behind in other aspects. Rather than uh, the same-sex marriage, just because uh, the same-sex marriage movement has been brewing for at least two dec, two to three decades locally. Like um, the uh, the movement is very deep rooted in the society and the conversation and the uh, all the other mechanisms are very uh, well established already. But rather, uh, other uh, mechanisms around other uh, like topics are still very uh, limited. So efforts are. Needed for you know from the grassroots level before we can actually bring it to the national level. Do you see the divisiveness coming out of the current discussion? Obviously, there's there's a lot of people that are very angry about this discussion. Do you see that as being something that might uh, prevent some of the discussions that you're hoping to see in the future, or do you see it as more uh, galvanizing supporters of gay rights uh, in Taiwan and 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 uh, kind of pushing them to be more active on these issues? I shouldn't. I I think the pushback for uh, other issues are definitely going to be larger than the one that we see right now for the same-sex marriage. Just because the so like transgender issues, yes, other issues yeah. might might be even more difficult. Is yeah, what you're yeah, saying. yeah, yeah. Just just because the fact that um, supporting it will bring a lot more social uh, like disruption than just same-sex marriage, because like there can be. Way more, um, you know, arguments, false arguments that the opposing side or the conservatives can make out of, you know, like uh, transgender issues or HIV issues because it's um, like related to public health and it's related to uh, us, like education at schools and like th- there are way more uh, like legit or uh, like I-, I guess like um, supposedly legit. Um, Points that they can make and arguments that can get a lot of more support from either the older generation or uh, the conservatives uh, down south. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, even even a, a very close friend of mine uh, said his his perspective was that you know if he had a gay child that he would be disappointed just because he wouldn't view it as normal. Like he wants a normal family and yeah. he would view that as abnormal. And I think that that's a view that is uh, somewhat pervasive for uh, a, a lot of uh, people in. Uh, later generations i mean what 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 do you think is going to need to happen in taiwan to uh, get everyone on the same page i think it's just to get um the uh lgbt uh general issues or like just uh sexual orientation this stuff um into the daily conversation first before we can even jump to uh more complicated um issues like transgender or hiv just because the fact that the discussion around sexual orientation is still not enough or not uh, at the level where uh, we're able to bring everyone onto the same platform or at the same playing field before you know like for other more complicated or deeper issues that's within the community itself yet which is what makes marriage uh, so important because uh, as William said to, to kind of conservative it has a normalizing role that's exactly yeah. the point right yeah. and and I'll add as a lawyer a couple of years after uh marriage equality comes into force there are going to be gay divorces and uh that was that is something lots of people could could relate to getting divorced uh, whether mm-hmm. it's in, is in taiwan or overseas not uh, so different after all exactly <laughs> so uh for our, our lgbt friends who are thinking about getting married uh, i recommend a prenuptial agreement <laughs> <laughs> and that advice is coming free from Absolutely. ross feingold <laughs> 
All right. Well, obviously, this is a huge topic, uh, but we're going to have to leave it for today, return to it on another show in the future, I am sure. All right. Up next, democracy advocacy groups are planning to hold a Taipei vigil to commemorate the 28th anniversary of China's Tiananmen Square massacre this Sunday. As they do so, they are planning to draw attention to the case of Taiwanese human rights advocate Li Mingzhe, who remains detained in China. Obviously, we've discussed that case a number of times on the show. They are saying that they see that case as emblematic of increasing repression of dissidents in China. And so I think uh, I haven't heard them make the connection explicitly, but I think the implicit connection would just be that there is a through line between that detention and the Tiananmen Square massacre in the sense that, you know, the long running pattern of uh, democratic repression. But before we get into the commemoration event itself, uh, let's give a quick update on the latest in the Li Mingzhe case, uh, because there is some news on that front as well. We'll just hit two main points real quick. Uh, First, China has been very cagey so far about what Li is actually charged with or suspected of doing. And also, they haven't been very forthcoming on his whereabouts. Uh, Well, we got a little bit of new information last Friday. Apparently, he has been arrested on charges for subversion of state power. An Fangshan, a spokesman for China's Taiwan Affairs Office, said Li has been detained in Hunan province since March 19th, and that he, quote, has confessed directly that he and others have carried out activity that threaten our country's national security. Uh, The spokesman claimed that an investigation into the case found that Li had frequently traveled to and from China since 2012 uh, and worked with Chinese nationals to develop plans of action and establish an illegal ring aimed at subverting Beijing. So that's the line uh, that we are getting from China's Taiwan Affairs Office. Now, this uh, subversion of state power is kind of a broad charge. Could mean a lot of different things. We don't have any more specifics than that. Russ, does this uh, pronouncement tell us anything new that we didn't already know? Other than, well, we know he's in Hunan, so that's Uh, significant. Not really, in the sense that uh, they were going to find a charge, and and, once he was detained, you knew he would be charged. And this is a typical kind of charge that's brought against people who engage in democracy planning, uh, opposition activities, whether it's uh, by the dissemination of printed materials, online materials, holding of meetings, panels, discussions, etc. So once he was detained, a charge would be forthcoming. It was very low likelihood that he would be released without any charge. There's still a lot of mystery in this whole situation, and specifically, uh, who did he meet with? Who was he representing from the Taiwan side? What organization? We know he was an instructor at a community college, but they're, they're not the ones who, who asked him to go to China. Uh, he has had an association with a relatively small NGO in Taiwan, which is so small it probably doesn't have much reach into China either. Um, so there, there's still much that remains to be seen. Uh, but uh, it, it is somewhat peculiar, I think, to uh, align it with the commemoration of the Tiananmen Massacre, because I'd say one has nothing to do with the other. We can make that port more uh, more forcefully in a second, but let's turn things over to William. Do you agree uh, we didn't learn much from this? Yeah, I mean, uh, so far, I think it's just a propagandic um, like announcement from China's part, because uh, it, they're basically saying that, uh, you know, your person is here with us, and uh, we're just going to hold him here as long as we want. And uh, from the fact that, you know, they have been, uh, like, prohibiting uh, his wife from getting any right to even uh, land set foot in China, it's... Uh, 
I think this time China is just going to use this case to uh, intimidate um, you know any future like Taiwanese who are perhaps trying to uh, pursue similar uh, things or uh, engage in similar activities in the future in China, saying, you know, like, right now we're really going to step up our game, you know, over, like, basically managing, like, making sure that uh, Taiwanese are not going to enjoy as much freedom as they used to before, you know, like, the Thai government took, like, office a year ago. I I, I don't mean to defend China, but I, I don't think Taiwanese ever had the freedom to engage in democracy promotion activities. So that that is horrible, but that is the reality in China. The, whether you're American or, or, or Taiwanese or any other nationality, China's government does not want people coming to China and engaging in, in these kinds of activities. So uh, you're, you're kind of on notice if you go there and do those things that you are putting yourself at risk of, of detention and criminal charges. That's just the nature of a dictatorship. But I guess, like, um, what's the difference is that in the past few years, uh, they ha- this kind of activity have, haven't really been on their radar or, like, they haven't put in a lot of, um, like, I guess, publicity around, you know, like, um, arrests or uh, incidents, similar incidents in the past. But Maybe not this- for Taiwanese, but the, the Chinese government has certainly arrested both Chinese activists and, and foreign activists, you know, Europeans and Americans yeah, yeah. have been arrested. And that's probably what prompted China to pass this NGO law. Um, which is really cracked down on on the space by which international NGOs, whether it's LGBT, environmental, women's rights, uh, democracy, to engage in any activities. Uh, so again, he was kind of on notice by by meeting with democracy activists that he, he'd be at risk. So it sounds like Ross is saying this is more reflective of perhaps a domestic turn within China that's a general crackdown, not necessarily specifically related to cross-strait relations. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh. I think yeah, in general yes, but again, like the fact that uh, this incident is uh, catching so much attention and uh, they're making official announcement out of the you know uh, the official body, I think it does definitely mean a warning sign to Taiwan or Taiwanese in general. All right. So uh, we are going to leave that point there for a second. I had one other little bit of uh, news on this case that I wanted to get to, but we're actually running short on time and it doesn't feel all that important after that uh, nice conversation we just had. So we're going to move on to another little bit of cross-strait drama that took place over the last week or so. Probably already familiar to most of our listeners because it was uh, p- fairly prominent on Facebook. Hard to miss. It was covered by a lot of international media organizations. Emirates, the uh, international airline, kind of waded into cross-strait troubles this week. The airline angered many of its Taiwanese cabin crew after issuing an email informing them that it would begin to observe the One China policy. What did that mean in practical terms? Well, uh, that email said that, quote, This means you must remove the Taiwanese flag from your service waistcoat and replace it with the Chinese flag. So basically all air staff would need to wear a Chinese flag on their uniform. Uh, According to the airline, the order was issued at the request of the Chinese government directly. So, uh, you know, certainly some pressure from China being exerted from there. Skip ahead a little bit. Huge furor. People are angry. People are posting about it online. Actually, a friend of mine uh, works at Emirates, and she put up a Facebook post angry about it. I think she wised up eventually because she eventually took that Facebook post down. Probably a a smart move on her part. But clearly, a lot of anger about this. 
Uh, and it actually looks like that anger may have paid off because uh, not too long after the first email, Emirates issued another email now saying Taiwanese cabin crew should wear no flag or they should at least not wear the Taiwanese flag and they could choose to wear no flag. The email also called the original order, quote, incorrect and inappropriate. So, William, I mean, it's pretty interesting first that this uh, order was made and then that it was uh, retracted so quickly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the fact that they are receiving so many, you know, so much like online protests from uh, and like netizens and also like official protests from like the Taiwanese MOFA and also the the office there in Dubai means that at this point, I think the airline realized that using the direct instruction from China to pressure the minorities in their company into adopting something that they wish is not it is going to you know appease like all the potential like provocations through the fact that they're displaying the Taiwanese flag on their uh, uniform is something that they probably need to have more deliberation before they uh, you know announce it internally and mm. you know make it a public like policy. Well, the, the main, the, the, this issue has come up with lots of companies. For example, companies buy off-the-shelf software to do payment processing, and there's drop-down fields of which country you're in. And so years ago, some of these softwares, say the Taiwan, comma, province of China, and some customer in Taiwan sees this and, and begins a, a online campaign to criticize the company until it gets changed. So obviously, the airline was extraordinarily remiss in not handling the situation in a, in a better way. Uh, now, we, we do have to understand that uh, depictions of the ROC flag are not acceptable to the PRC government, especially in China. So Emirates does have flights that fly to China. And in fact, it's quite lucrative for them. So uh, it's understandable that they would have to react and not have staff wearing an ROC flag on flights that are going to China. And and we have to look at it in a very practical way. I and mean, this is just something the Chinese government does not accept. And in fact, it, it angers them. Uh, but the, given that the, the point of these flags is to help the passengers identify the language that the flight attendants speak maybe there are other ways to do this than a flag you could have something that says i speak mandarin written in chinese characters and boom problem solved and it's something that people from uh, china and taiwan can wear Mm. all right so uh, always some fun flag issues to sort out uh, in the show we're gonna buzz right on past that one and pick up on a point that Ross was making a second ago. Obviously, just in uh, two days on Sunday, we are we're gonna be seeing some remembrances of the Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, and as we said, they are going to be focusing on the plight of Li Mingzhu in that case in general. And uh, Ross, I'm just curious for your thoughts on, you know, how uh, Tiananmen Square massacre has been remembered in Taiwan in the past, the significance of that event here, and uh, how it affects the view of China. Uh, and also, uh, why it is that you feel like it should not necessarily be related to Li Mingzhu's case? Oh, one of the reasons why commemorations of Tiananmen Massacre have gotten prominence over the years is uh, when Ma Ying-jeou was uh, justice minister, then he was mayor of Taipei for eight years, and he was president for eight years, it was an issue that he took a great personal interest in, so he would personally attend uh, commemorations, he would talk about it, uh, and and that helped keep commemorations in, in the media here in Taiwan. 
But uh, in my view, having commemorations of, of Tiananmen Massacre goes to a very important issue, which is do people here in Taiwan see themselves as part of China or not? And if people don't see themselves as part of China, then there shouldn't be any more commemoration of Tiananmen than would occur in any other foreign country, whether it's somewhere else in Asia, the United States, or, or Europe. Uh, but the, we seem to be mixing, right? Like on the one hand, we want to say, uh, well, we're marking it because it shows how the Chinese government is, is evil and does these terrible things, and uh, they crack down on our compatriots. Uh, oh, but on the other hand, we're, we're actually not part of China anyway. I mean, to me, it's one or the other. And uh, I think it's confusing for the international community. So if people in Taiwan want to build uh, understanding outside of Taiwan that there is a separate Taiwanese identity, I think having a a Tiananmen commemoration here actually confuses the international community because then they just assume that Taiwan is is a currently separated part of China, but is still part of China. And that's why people in Taiwan are commemorating Tiananmen. Mm. Uh, What do you see there, Will? Uh, yeah, I, I think I had to agree with Ross on the fact that um, we don't really have a lot of... Um, like- he literally does a happy dance every time somebody agrees with him. <laughs> I mean, like, literally arms flailing. Anyway, go on. Like, yeah, like, m- making it such a, uh, a official event uh, over the, I mean, the anniversaries of uh, Tiananmen Square is, in fact, um, not really helping Taiwan in a lot of the ways if we want to be recognized as, um, you know, different from China, just just because uh it isn't really part of our history you know like um on 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 that day in 1989 like they, there's definitely something else going on in Taiwan and like it doesn't really like directly affect what you know the the lives here in Taiwan so it's either uh the we're trying to uh i i guess like uphold the fact that you know they, those uh people who got prosecuted uh on that day they are upholding something that we believe in which is democracy and uh but uh, and at the same time painting the chinese government in a bad light and uh making a point that this is why you know uh, we need to i guess like contain the Ch- chinese government's uh power and their influence and you know recognize taiwan because we are the I guess the most functioning and the uh, most uh, well-established democracy in the Chinese-speaking world. So I guess like the the point that they're trying to make, perhaps it's you know draw a very clear distinction between Taiwan and China. That's a, I guess a more positive way of looking at it. But um, in short, it's just yeah, it really does not really help Taiwan in a lot of the ways. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to let that be the final note for the first half of the show. We are moving to a commercial break now. When we return, we'll be taking you to Tech Town with Computex in Taipei. New efforts to preserve Taiwan's indigenous languages take shape. We're going to discuss that. And we remember the life and work of Father George Martinson, who died earlier this week. All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Ross Feingold and William Young. You know, uh, of course, uh, most of our listeners probably know about the news of uh, the U.S. planning to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords. 
Wasn't really going to talk about it on the show today because a little bit hard to find a Taiwan angle in all that. But then here we are looking out these windows, uh, seeing torrential rains and cold skies in uh, June, Ross. Well, there is a Taiwan angle in the sense that like a lot of international uh, covenants that Taiwan has expressed a desire to follow what's what's in, in provided in the content of these agreements and, and very often Taiwan despite being formally excluded will still pass domestic legislation uh, to enforce adherence to to these uh, international covenants and that would include environmental or human rights and similar international agreements uh, president Tsai has, has always been a, a outspoken advocate for environmental protection uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether she continues to say that her government will uh, take actions consistent with uh, pursuing clean energy and, and the power, Paris Accords. Definitely something to watch. All right. Something to watch indeed. Although, you know, William and I are kind of enjoying the cooler weather, so maybe uh, climate change ain't so bad here in Taiwan. Uh but yes, definitely something to watch. Jumping back into uh, our, our, our main programming for the show today, Computex Taipei 2017, touted as one of the largest information communications technology trade exhibitions in the world, opened on Tuesday of this week. And it's running through until tomorrow. Uh, it's actually going to be at two separate venues, the Taipei Trade Center and the Nangang Exhibition Hall, if you want to make it over to the event. I'm just going to run through a couple of, uh, of the stats for this year. Apparently, 1,600 exhibitors will demonstrate their innovations at 5,000 booths. Uh, some of those exhibitors, some of the most prominent, will be Taiwan-based PC brand Acer and Asus Tech Computer, U.S.-based software giant Microsoft, uh, along with uh, Tesla Motors. So a lot of big names out there. And there's going to be a couple of major themes for the event as well. Uh, Internet of Things, Smart City and Smart Home Applications, computer gaming, augmented reality and virtual reality are some of the major themes for the event this year. I, I still haven't tried virtual reality yet, so maybe I should make it over there too. So those are kind of like the nuts and bolts, uh, some of the basic facts for this year's event. Uh, I'm going to turn things over to Ross, though. Uh, maybe you can explain to our listeners who are less familiar with Computex, uh, what is such a big deal about this trade fair? Well, at its most basic level, as, as you called it, it's a trade fair. It's a place where buyers and sellers can meet and they can discuss products, The what what, what will be the new products, what will be uh, production lead times. Um, and, and of course, unlike more traditional industries, uh, there, there's an extraordinary level of complexity with the products that we're talking about because we're talking about IT hardware or increasingly the convergence of hardware and software and things like uh, uh, AR or VR, uh, but but for Taiwan specifically and, and Taiwan's role in, in the IT supply chain and the threats it faces, for example, from the red supply chain in China, Computex is, is so crucial because it, it it's an indicator of what Taiwan Taiwan manufactured IT manufacturers' role will be in the next greatest things, and you identified some of them, and there are a few others out there like, like driverless cars and. Um, you, know, you mentioned Tesla mm -hmm. uh, the, and and these kinds of next greatest things, the next even the next iPhone. And, and we know that Taiwan companies play a crucial role in manufacturing some of these parts, but uh, th that could always move. Taiwan is always under threat to losing part of the manufacturing supply chain to, to China or other locations. So save us, Zenbo. Well, <laughs> save us. Of course, I can do that. Uh, so you know, you, you you mentioned the number of booths or attendees and, and venues. And 
uh, it sounds like uh, as a government would do, they they put out the the high level propaganda, which is uh, we'll we'll tell you how many booths there are, how many attendees there are. A more a more useful metric would be how has it changed over the years? So how many buyers, how many booths, displays, etc. are there this year versus last year? And, and what does that tell us about the trajectory uh, of the tech industry for this year, which in turn would be uh, incredibly crucial to Taiwan's economic performance? I just look at the headlines. That's all I need. Uh, William, so obviously Ketagawa Media kind of tech spirit is in the DNA of that media organization. You guys cover tech news quite a lot uh, for Taiwan and uh, elsewhere. Uh, and then also uh, you follow CompuTech stuff uh, in general yourself. So uh, what would you want to tell our listeners about uh, the significance of the event this year? I think uh, starting from last year and this year, uh, con- con- continuously, there is a panel that's uh, specifically dedicated to the startup world and also highlighting innovation, uh, you know, like inviting uh, regional and uh, global like innovators and leaders in the realm of startup and uh, mostly uh, mainly focusing on IoT, actually, uh, to come and talk about, you know, like what's been happening and like um, what like what what is the future trend and like what to like stress. So I guess like that that's a way to help uh, the Taiwanese industry to uh, connect to the global scene and at the same time uh, help to start the uh, first few steps of uh, developing and like steering the transformation of Taiwan's uh, like very hardware uh, focused uh, tech industry into a more uh, hardware software integration uh, industry or a software focus because uh, we as we know uh, Taiwan has been losing a lot of the competitiveness that it used to enjoy on the hardware seeing one you know as the world like is starting to focus less on just hardware but you know the integration of hardware and software or even like a software driven uh, like solutions so uh, it will be interesting to see how the government is going to, you know, use the messages or the discussions that come out of this trade show and uh, implement it into its economic plan. As the uh, vice president actually uh, emphasized at the opening ceremony at the event, that you know Taiwan is really starting to implement all these um, like transformation plans into the economic growth plan that's going to be carried out in the next few years. Yeah. Did you see anything at the event that you found encouraging? Anything? Actually, the Daily Mail picked up uh, on a couple of robots, <laughs> that uh, chess-playing robots uh, with uh, strong visual capabilities. Uh, they Apparently, the Daily Mail was very impressed by that. Did anything catch your eye? Yeah, I, I actually, um, like I, I think a, a lot of the uh, highlighted uh, products from this year's Computex from the Taiwanese manufacturers are related to robotics. Just I, I assume you know, like it, it's a way for like the Taiwanese companies to like show that they are really investing in uh, developing in the, that particular field and how the robotics is going to be fit into business solutions or even uh, medical solutions in the future and. Um, in fact, yeah, like a, a a lot of the like smaller brands, not not the well known ones like um, BenQ or um, other companies, are also embracing uh, like robotics into um, like traditionally not so like well known fields, and it's breaking new grounds. But uh, it's I think it's interesting to see how you know from the debut at Computex how these solutions are going to be actually like developed and like manufactured and commercialized in the next few years so you think Taiwan had something to show off this week in terms of robotics 
yes, definitely. I think the concentration, you know, of like the products that are like featured on robotics um, tells us something that you know it's something that we may perhaps be able to like envision and expect. All right, we're gonna round that one out right there. Up next. Taiwan currently has 16 recognized indigenous tribes, and depending on who's doing the counting, something like a dozen or even more than two dozen indigenous languages. But many of these languages are severely endangered, and observers warn that this vital aspect of indigenous identity and culture could soon be lost. Well, this week the legislature passed a new bill aimed at boosting support to preserve these languages. They're calling it the Indigenous Language Development Act. Uh, it's kind of a grab bag of many different provisions, all aimed at preserving these languages or maintaining these languages as a part of the daily lives of indigenous people. Uh, just to go through quickly、uh, a list of some of the key provisions here, one would be the establishment of local offices taxed with the promotion of local languages. Uh, another would be a requirement that steps be taken、uh, to record these languages,、uh, for example, in dictionaries.、Uh, another would be requirements that official documents in Aboriginal areas、uh, use commonly used、uh, languages from that area.、Uh, in a similar vein, other requirements would hold that all public transportation in these areas would be required to use the languages. Uh, in their announcements, you know, very similar to what we hear on the Taipei MRT or other MRTs around Taiwan.、Uh, finally, probably most importantly, this bill would aim to boost education for Aboriginal peoples in these languages. So we would see requirements that these languages be included in curriculums, and that teachers be provided、uh, to help educate Aboriginal people or others interested. In these languages, that's a, that's a big part of it as well. So, just to get a better idea of what this bill is going to look like and the thinking behind it, I recently spoke with legislator Gula Sudaka of the Ami's Tribe. She is the DPP legislator who was the original drafter of the bill. Here is our conversation in the legislative offices in Taipei. Legislator, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Kaze. How are you? So, just to start off,、uh, maybe we could take a look at the motivation behind this bill. Obviously, this is、uh, an act that was a long time in the making. It took a long time to develop and to finally pass. So, what was the thinking behind why language preservation and why these requirements、uh, to promote language preservation are needed in Taiwan? I have to say, languages are our lives. We have been fighting for this for years, but we never pass these laws.、Um, to、uh, pass these laws means a lot to us because, according to the law, the government has the responsibility to retrieve, revitalize our languages. It's very, very important because hundred year ago, it's the government. Took our languages from the school. I always told people that schools are the tomb of our languages. So, if you want to get our language back, then it should be from the schools. But、uh, in my personal、uh, experiences, and even when I was working for the city government in Taoyuan. I found that it's very hard. You know, the whole mindsets of people, of the public servants, need 
to be changed. People always think indigenous languages is just one of the dialects. It's not the national languages. We don't have to invest so much funding, so much money to revitalize the minority languages. I think it's not fair because indigenous languages in Taiwan are totally different from uh, Mandarin because we have so many metaphors. We have so many um, history that we can um, that are in the languages itself. So if we don't have the languages, then we don't have our culture and our lives. So of course, it's very, very important to pass the law and to make the whole government to revitalize our languages. And it's the government's job because it's the government took our languages. Now it's their turn. It's the turn. Uh, their turn to uh, give us back our languages. That's a really interesting connection you just made right there between language and culture. And I'm wondering if you could maybe help our listeners understand a little bit how these languages support culture, and maybe just even in your own life, how uh, the ability to speak. Uh, Aboriginal languages uh, helps you keep in touch with that culture? Uh, We are losing our languages, honestly, even for myself. My listening is much better than my speaking because um, I remember when I was a kid, we are living in the cities because my parents had to move to the cities to get a job. My hometown is from Hualien, the eastern part of Taitung. But when people try to survive in the cities. It's not allowed to speak the languages because we would be discriminated by speaking our own languages. I remember my parents told me, oh, go to learn English, go to learn Japanese, never speak your own languages. So I'm losing my languages. I was, but I try my best to keep my language because in the end I found, especially when I took the job as a journalist, I found it's so difficult to communicate with villagers or the elders, even from the elders from my own hometown, my own village. So the people are dying, the elders are dying. These people are the ones who know our culture, the ritual and uh, the natures. So if we cannot learn our language back, then we have no way to go back home. We have no way to talk to the elders who are dying. Of course, it's important. It's the main vehicle, main channel for us to pass down our cultures, I mean the languages. So in your vision of how language preservation is going to work, because you're not just talking about, hey, let's record all this, write it down, make sure it's in a book somewhere. I mean, it really does sound like you're hoping that this becomes a part of people's daily lives, something that people use in their jobs, in their workplace, uh, when they're talking to their family. Can you help us understand a little bit more what that would mean uh, for, you know, uh, for young people that actually gain some language ability? I think we can separate this question to different levels. The answers can go to different categories. Uh, The first part is... In this law, we ask the government to um, to uh, teach the students their own languages in school. And 
the other main idea is to create more job,、uh, job opportunities that has to speak our own languages, like language teachers or translators in the government, because we have a particular article. Which says the government has to hire translators for any indigenous person who are doing business.、Uh, I mean,、uh, public affair in the government uh, uh, offices. Like anyone would like to sign up for their own kids, newborn baby, to register. Then, if he or she can only speak his own language, then the government has to hire a translator. For these new、uh, parents, for the registration for their new baby, this is just、uh, small examples. So I mean that in this law, we are creating many different kind of job opportunities for these language speakers. So this is the motivation, even in the labor market,、uh, especially in school, in the government. Even in radio station, in TITV, Taiwan Indigenous TV, these channels or workplace need to hire more people who can speak their own languages. So we train people, we help people to get their own languages back, and we create job opportunities. So we solve these problems、uh, in this law to encourage people to learn their languages. And the second part is like、uh, we ask the government to change the mountain, the names of the mountain, the river, even the road, even the villages in Taiwan, to change the names back to indigenous indigenous name. That is very important because anyone, no matter you,、uh, he or she is indigenous or not. Whenever he goes to that village, that city, then he or she will know. Oh, this place, this area belonged to indigenous people, which means we want the whole society respect our languages. And as an indigenous person or indigenous language speaker, I feel honored and I'm proud. To be an indigenous language speaker, I'm proud of my own language. So we hope this law can help people, encourage people to speak, encourage people to listen, and、uh, we also hope this law can help people to earn their honor or their pride, dignity. Now I hear there when you're talking, a, a lot of what you're thinking about is the respect afforded to indigenous people in Taiwan, their, their status within society, and this、uh, obviously brings up a whole different set of issues、uh, ongoing right now. The transitional justice issues.、Uh, many indigenous people feel like they have been overlooked in this process. Many,、uh, especially in the recent development of some kind of scheme to grant lands to tribes.、Uh, there's been obviously protests on Kedagalan Boulevard ongoing for dozens and dozens of days now. Maybe you could tell us a little bit how, in your mind, the, this language issue relates to that broader program of transitional justice. It's definitely、uh, an important step for transitional justice. Actually, I would like to say, call it historical justice. It's very, very important. When we talk about historical justice, I think for me, the most important thing is to change people's mindsets, to change the angle. Of the history 
it's very important. All the history were written by Han Chinese in Taiwan. So, like to twist, not twist, uh, to reverse the meaning of languages is one important step for people to get used to it, to get used to that Taiwan is not just belong to Han Chinese. Even the languages you use have different options. You can speak Mandarin, you can speak Hakka Holo, and you can speak indigenous language too. And not just personal choice, it's legal um, responsibility for the government to, to implement or to help people know we have so many uh, language choices. So, of course, it's reversing people's mindset and attitude towards Taiwan indigenous peoples. Of course, it's uh, so uh, when we talk about uh, historical justice, transitional justice, it doesn't have to be um, only protesting at street. And uh, we have so many things else to do, like languages. Language is our life. It's important as land, too. Let's talk a little bit about the practicality of all of this, because uh, currently I believe that there's uh, 16 recognized tribes in Taiwan by the government. Uh, depending on who you ask, there's either about a dozen or two dozen different languages uh, spoken by Aboriginal tribes. So we're talking about a lot of different languages. Uh, and at the same time, Taiwanese students are already very much burdened by uh, other language requirements, whether it's studying English or, or you know, studying other foreign languages. Students feel very burdened by this. And I, I know that this regulation, you know, you're not requiring students to study Aboriginal languages. But it, you do have to wonder a little bit, just practically speaking, with students that have so much on their plate, so much to worry about, how much do you think they'll be able to uh, invest in this aspect of their culture? Mm, yeah, that's the question sometimes people ask me. Some, some people ask me this question, too. Uh, I have to say, to learn the language back is not a punishment for kids at all. So, like what, what I said just now, we created more motivation for people to learn, like to c create more job opportunities. That's important. That's important motivation for people to learn in current Taiwan. Because most of the people in Taiwan, they don't speak indigenous languages. So for most of the people, no need to learn the language. But if you speak the language, and it can help you to earn your own living in Taiwan, then it helps. So in these laws, of course, it's very important to create the motivation for kids. And at the same time, according to some of the articles, we think, at least I myself, I think it's our own job to learn our own language back. It's never a burden. Though we have to learn English, we have to learn Japanese for some people. And, uh, but I think it's our own duty to get our own language back. That's why we put the article like such as anyone, any indigenous person who would like to be a public servant, then he or she has to pass the language test first. Then he passed the uh, national uh, exams 
for getting a job in the government. So some people might think, oh, how come? It's double discrimination. It's not fair. It's a punishment. No, but for us, uh, we are telling people that it's our own job and our own responsibility to learn the language back. It's not a punishment, and we shouldn't think that way. So how optimistic would you say you are? I mean, uh, looking at UNESCO, they've surveyed some of these languages to see how endangered some of them are. Many of them are quite endangered. I mean, we're talking about, in some cases, like only five people can still speak some of these languages. So how hopeful are you that uh, a lot of these languages can be preserved and can be maintained as an aspect of daily life in Taiwan? I have to say, we tried our best for this moment, but it's not the perfect situation for us right now. Like... uh, which is like Thao people from Salmon Lake, from Nanto. There are only 7 Thao people who can speak Thao. So it's very endangered too. For now, I can see the hope to slow down the speed of dying of the languages. But uh, I'm not sure if we can revitalize the language 100%. I, I won't say uh, we can definitely do it. I'm not sure if we can do it 100%. But uh, at least we see the hope that to help to slow down the speed of dying and at the same time, we create more motivation to help people to create more creative uh, way to learn our language back. So for me, it's just the first step. It's not the end. It's not a period. All right, and just to round out the interview, uh, some of our listeners would know that uh, you are from the Amis tribe, and as you uh, explained to me before this interview, uh, the language uh, that you speak is Banza, and I was wondering if you could send a message to our listeners in Banza. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm uh, very happy. Vagi vai saligaga mapulong ai ho ji gulasinga no mako. Saizu no minta, saizu no mako ami sano Banza. And help us out. What does that mean? <laughs> it means that, oh, uncle, aunties, my brothers and sisters, hello, everyone. My name is Gulas. Let's work together. Let's keep going. And I myself will keep speaking Banza. All right. Great message to end things on. Uh, we have been speaking today to legislator Gulas Yudaka. Uh, legislator, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. All right. Last up for the show today, as I said at the top of the program, we're going to end on something of a somber note. Eulogies and remembrances are pouring in from just about everywhere for Father George Martinson, who passed away earlier this week. The lifetime Jesuit priest came to Taiwan in 1967 as a missionary and went to live in Shinju County, where he studied Mandarin. He later became a television producer and host, working at the Guangxi Program Service, basically a television studio uh, that produced free educational programs. He was later recognized for documentaries that he produced there on refugees in northern Thailand and churches in mainland China. Won awards for both of those. A little bit of a very sad irony here is uh, just given the timing of his passing, the Ministry of the Interior had originally planned to hold a news conference Uh, on Thursday, so just yesterday, to present Father Martinson with a Taiwan ID card for his work in the country. 
So it was going to be kind of a, a, a momentous occasion to kind of honor him for his uh, years of work and service within Taiwan. Uh, but given his passing, I believe on Wednesday, uh, the news conference was instead turned into a memorial, a uh, very well-attended memorial. Uh, like I said, uh, remembrances have been coming in from all over. Uh, the church, the Catholic Church itself, has issued some uh, statements about Father Martinson. Uh, President Tsai Ing-wen uh, tweeted her own remembrances. She said on Thursday the father was a bona fide Taiwanese who dedicated decades of his life to the country and deserves, quote, our respect and gratitude. Uh, I actually reached out to Father Martinson's brother, uh, Father Barry Martinson, who uh, is also a missionary that has lived for many, many years in Taiwan. Uh, he sent me the following message. He said, Father Jerry died here after a week spent in Upper Mongolia, helping with a documentary on the Jesuit priest, poet, and paleontologist. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name. I apologize. Uh, Tailhard de Chardin. Uh, the crew he was with in China said he looked happy and healthy and energetic as ever and really enjoyed the shoot and walking in the footsteps of this man, one of Jerry's most admired persons. Jerry wrote his philosophy MA thesis on Telhard before coming to Taiwan. Uh, in addition, he also said that Guangxi Program Service turned their first floor studio into a memorial hall for visitors who would like to pay their respects. Uh, the memorial has many of Father Jerry's personal items and photos on display currently. The funeral date has been set for 9.30 a.m. on Saturday, June 17th at Holy Family Church in Taipei. So, uh, clearly a very beloved figure in Taiwan. Uh, many, uh, you know, we're really getting a sense of uh, loss and, and shock from a lot of the people who did care uh, an awful lot about uh, Father George Martinson. Uh, and Ross, uh, you were telling me that, you know, the role that he filled uh, as a longtime missionary, carrying a lot of, out a lot of important work here in Taiwan, uh, puts him in, in good company with many others here in Taiwan. That's right. Uh, in the post-World War, World War II era, and even before that, uh, there's been a number of missionaries who have served here for 50, 60, uh, even more years, uh, and uh, they've served uh, – either uh, in Aboriginal communities ministering to the ill, um, diseases that have fortunately now been eradicated from Taiwan, like leprosy, um, and teaching English is, is also an activity that um, a number of these longtime missionaries have been involved in. And um, Father uh, George Martins is a very good example, given his, his long involvement with English education in Taiwan. And it, it's good that the government has recognized the contribution of these foreigners. We do have a lot of foreigners uh, in the audience. So it's, it's, it's good to know that um, efforts to contribute to Taiwan do get recognized. It's, uh, it is a sad note that he didn't receive his Taiwan citizenship before he passed away. It's also sad that it's taken so long for the government to facilitate foreigners acquiring citizenship without giving up their original citizenship. Uh, well, be that as it as it may, it's um, you know it's it's good that uh, the contributions of of someone like this is is being recognized. And William, you were telling me before the show started that he actually made some uh, very specific uh, contributions to the LGBT movement. Yes, uh, so I think. Uh, ever since six years ago, he was invited to be on the board of trustees of one of the local uh, NGOs that's dedicating to uh, HIV prevention and uh, education here in Taiwan. And uh, he even went so far as to uh, attend a uh, 
blessing ceremony uh, for a transgender HIV uh, inf- like a patient who is about to die, but you know he like that that patient basically hopes to receive like blessings from the Catholic Church before he can you know like pass I guess on. yeah pass mm-hmm. on so. Um, that just shows that even though a lot of these um, issues are against the church's position, but um, he still is willing to, you know, like break the ground and like uh, uphold human rights and uh, di- like human dignity to, you know, like provide service to these um, marginalized um, individuals in the society. Yeah. All right. So some very touching, moving uh, remembrances there. Once again, for uh, anybody who is interested in attending, uh, the funeral date uh, was set for June 17th. That is a Saturday. It's going to be in the morning at 9.30 a.m. at, once again, Holy Family Church in Taipei. And uh, we are going to round out the show on that note right there. All right, well, uh, we have to leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT-FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, any old place where you can expect to find podcasts. You can find this one. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And William Young. Very good to have you on the show. Thank you. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.